Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders, leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering in a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect, and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. For us as a family, it's really about kind of coalescing around a shared set of values and spending time working out what that is. And then from there, you can make good strategic decisions about what you might choose to invest in, what kind of philanthropy you want to support. And I think for a lot of family officers, family foundations, relationships, uh, trust are are really important factors. And I certainly know that with the organisations that we support or that we invest in, um, those things are generally really, really important. Those are the wise words of Kathy Scalzo, who heads up the Scalzo family office. A bit more about Kathy soon, but just some brief housekeeping first. Thanks to all of you who completed our second annual listener typeform survey. We're going to close that survey on Friday at 5 p.m. There's still time to get that done if you want to have your say on the Humans of Purpose experience to date and to go into the mix to win some awesome prizes too. You can find that survey link in today's show notes or by heading to humansofpurpose.com and hitting the launch me button down the bottom of the page. Have you thought about podcasting before for yourself or your organization in a way that's impactful and leaves its presence felt and leads people to take action or change beliefs, attitudes, behaviors? Well, this is something I think about a lot and have spent the past few years thinking about and an equal number of people have asked me about how to do that. So I've decided to put on a webinar in partnership with Pro Bono Australia on 7th of November at 2pm to talk very much about how to podcast in an impactful way. Of course, Humans of Purpose listeners will get 30% off those tickets by using promo code PURPOSE. So we're going to link that in our show notes and also in our upcoming newsletter, or you can just head to probonoaustralia.com.au and you'll find that on that date in the events section. So as I mentioned today, I'm very excited to be speaking with Kathy Scalzo on the podcast. Kathy heads up Scalzo Foods Family Office. The Grace and Emilio Foundation was founded in honour of Quinn's parents who migrated to Australia in the 1950s in search of greater opportunity for their children. So the foundation funds the work of numerous charities in Australia and globally and is particularly proud of its long-standing relationships with Eat Up, Reach Out, Backtrack, YouthWorks and the Mirabelle and Mornington Peninsula Foundations. You may have heard our recent uh, Humans of Purpose podcast with Linda Mingalaya of Eat Up. So that's definitely a good one to check out uh, for a bit of insight into Eat Up as a, as a fundee or a recipient of uh, funds from the Scalzo Foundation. So for this podcast, I've unlocked our usual Patreon-exclusive Humans of Purpose Plus section, which starts at the 28-minute mark. And this is the section where we go a little bit deeper with our guests and we talk about purpose, habits, inspirations, and routines that have helped them be successful in what they do. Becoming a Patreon supporter like our current community of supporters costs just $4 a month, and it's a great way to support the podcast and get some terrific extra content and Humans of Purpose merch too. On that note, a big thank you to McCartan, Stuart, Joel, Misha Times 2, Bonnie, Olivia, Lyndon, Joe, and B. Your support helps us to keep putting out quality content each and every week. So in short, I really enjoyed this conversation with Kathy, and I'm not going to give you any spoilers, and I think you're really going to enjoy it too. Kathy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. It's a privilege to have you. And I think since we last uh, caught off a coffee, I was just fascinated by your work, fascinated by your story, and really can't wait to hear a little, hear a little bit more. Okay. Uh, will you take me on a bit of a journey uh, to where it all started for you, as far back as you'd like to go, uh, into uh, what you're doing today? 
Okay. Um, well, I started my working life as a lawyer, uh, but pretty quickly I think discovered that uh, life in a big commercial firm wasn't where I wanted to be. So I spent most of my articles year applying uh, for the graduate program at the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. It's quite a long process, um, but I got uh, a graduate program role there and joined the department. Um, and I spent about six or so years there. I did uh, posting in Eastern Europe. Is that based out of Canberra or was it that? It was, yep. yeah. So um, you start your working life at DFAT in Canberra and uh, you can then apply for postings. So I applied for, uh, it was Warsaw, um, was the base of it, but we looked after Poland, the Czech Republic and Slovakia. Oh my God, fascinating. It was, yeah, it was. Um, so I did that for a little while and then um, I really loved it, but I also um, missed family. I'm pretty close to my family and I think I was kind of worried about long-term, it was quite an unsettled life and I just wasn't quite sure how that would play out. So when I came back, I took a, a short leave of absence and I looked at other options um, and I ended up working for a while in uh, the Department of Justice on native title issues, actually, because it was around the time that um, native la- title legislation had come into place. Are these the Mambo Wick dates? Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, it, it's sort of post that period when governments were really looking at ways to um, come up with agreements and things with um, the various Indigenous groups within within their states. Um, and I worked in that department for a while and um, and I guess honestly I miss the dynamism of foreign affairs and trade. That's a very dynamic sort of place, lots of people coming and going. Um, and the Department of Justice was a pretty sort of staid environment and I got itchy feet. Were uh, you working in policy at DOJ? Yes, yeah. yes, I was. Policy and sort of negotiations um, with Indigenous people, but it was a, a very slow and sort of protracted mm. process. Um, and look, Victoria's come such a long way since then, um, but at the time it was it was quite a slow process. Uh, and so then I actually ended up going back to my old law firm uh, for a period of time. Um, I, I, I sort of thought more carefully about what area of law I'd be interested in And so I ended up um, in anti-discrimination law, um, employment law, and was also uh, responsible for the pro bono practice for Victoria, for the firm that I was in. And that was a really good mix of interesting things for me at the time. Um, I then had my first uh, child and uh, my father came to me and he said, I can offer you something no one else can offer you. And that is (laughs) complete flexibility. And at the time, that was a pretty tempting offer. Um, so I decided to jump ship into our family business, uh, and I was lucky that the business had grown to a point where it needed legal skills. Yeah. Um, you know, that would not have been the case, hmm. you know, a number of years before that. Um, so I, yeah, I joined the firm, I, uh, sorry, joined the family firm yeah. and, uh, had a couple more children over that period. And then that role it sort of evolved really over time where the family was looking at doing some other things. So we have a, a food business, which we um, has been the traditional area that my family's been involved in. But then we thought we would like to do some other things as well, some investing, some property, um, developing a family foundation. Mm. And so I took responsibility uh, for setting up that sort of different set of interests that my family were looking after. That's what we call a, a family office. Mm. And I now run that group for my family, that group of interests. 
Amazing. Um, I want to ask the a question that might have come up before for you, and is that when you when your family has a business um, and you're kind of making your own way, is it always in the back of your mind that maybe one day you'll become part of that business? Because it sounds like for you that wasn't the case, but I imagine for many others, it's sort of like the seed is always there in the background. Yeah, I think that's probably. I think it's probably different for different people. So my brother, one of my brothers, for example, worked in our family's business um, from really young age. Uh, in the warehouse and and it's worked his way up through every role you could imagine. For me, it just was not ever really in my thought process, Um, except I think when I was in Poland, I did start to think a little bit about that. Um, I was really interested in international relations and the food businesses could not be more international and I just started to think through, well, perhaps there was some role for me there, but it wasn't a fully formed sort of thought. so, yeah, I really had to go and kind of live another life before I could see the potential, I think. Yeah, and, and it sounds like the journey to me makes so much sense. I think that law, legal policy, obviously there's a lot of social justice interest in there as well. Has that always been a part of your kind of up- upbringing or was that sort of very triggered for you by the DO, for the overseas posting and that DFAT kind of period? Yeah. No, that's always been there. So I think um, the reason I studied law was I had – you know, um, a really kind of strong sense of law as a vehicle um, for social justice and, again, later policy as a vehicle for social justice. Um, and uh, and now I've come to understand, I guess, as well, that business as well conducted in the right way and investment conducted in a purposeful way um, are also vehicles mm. uh, for greater sort of social justice. So that has always been there. And even when I... Um, worked in commercial firm. I volunteered at the Fitzroy Legal Service. Um, I was on a committee at the Southport Community Legal Centre. Um, so it's always been part of yeah, my area of interest. One of the reasons I was really excited to bring you on today was to learn a bit more about what it's like to run a private family office. Um, I think very we don't have the, the doors opened up for us uh, regularly on what that's like, but you know we hear from so many not-for-profits, or certainly I do, that are looking for support or looking to partner or looking to sort of understand a bit better um, uh, what what the thoughts and machinations are. Can you just give us some insights into that and um, maybe just talk a bit about the family office and what it's like? Yeah. Um, I think given the question that you've asked about it, I think uh, for us as a family it's really about kind of coalescing around a shared set of values and spending time working out what that is and then from there you can make good strategic decisions about what you might choose to invest in, what kind of philanthropy you want to support. And I think for a lot of family officers, family foundations, relationships, uh, trust are are really important factors. And I certainly know that with the organisations that we support or that we invest in, um, those things are generally really, really important. I think that's one of the things I love about um, life generally, but this stage of life is deepening relationships and deepening trust being so important to making things work. And it sounds to me like there's a real premium on the, those personal relationships at the family office level, certainly. Yeah, I, I think I don't think that would be unique to us. I think that would definitely be the case across the board. Um, and I think it's also because uh, with a family group, Um, you've got like a range of skills that might be available within the family group that you can um, make available to organisations, not-for-profits, social enterprises. So in that really traditional sense of philanthropy, the the full conception of it, so you're not just offering up. So you can be more involved. You actually want a a sort of more of a partnered model perhaps than here's the cash. 
partner model, but a partner model that is really respectful of what it is that the not-for-profit or social enterprise might need. So sometimes that's just kind of asking um, advice or looking for networks or connections. Sometimes it's something more tangible. Um, Like, you know, in our case, we have a food business. Sometimes if that's about food security, we can help to provide product or access to product. Um, but yes, it's it's sort of saying we, we want to provide you with funding, but but what else can we do together that helps to support whatever that you know that not for profit uh, needs to achieve? So in your case, when your family got together and sort of decided what your values were and what what the mission was per se, um, what's that process like, and how did that come out in the end? Uh, the mission, so to speak. Um, it's it's an interesting process because obviously it's a group of individuals who've all got. Yes, some shared values, but quite often different views about um, the way that you might affect change in the world. You might have different views about uh, what's really important. And so in the end, you kind of have to come together around the common ground. And So as individuals, you might still have other interests that you want to pursue, but what do you share in common? Um, and also for us, I think strong drivers really came from the life story of my respective parents. Um, And for my father, for example, um, uh, having been given opportunities along the way by other people that um, helped to lead him into employment and, and then sort of set him off on his sort of trajectory, career trajectory, that was really important to him. So, um, helping uh, create better employment pathways, mm. supporting kids who might otherwise um, not have access to education um, or not access to the kind of education they should have, those sort of things were really important. Um, so family story and history actually plays quite a big part in forming those values. It, there's no doubt that it has for us, yes, and that's something that we all share and we've all come from that and paying respect to that and finding a place for that in our philanthropy has been really important. And so, I mean, the family office is one thing, but you're involved in a number of spaces. You also sit in a few boards, uh, which would keep you quite busy, but you're also the the, the legal uh, head of the family. So so there's a lot, a lot of things going on mm. there. Maybe uh, talk to me a little bit about what you're doing outside of uh, the family office um, and also just what it's like having to balance those responsibilities and how, whether that's something that fuels you or sort of makes it hard at times to to do everything well. Yeah, okay. Um, Look, I think uh, so it was important to me that even though I'm working very much with my family that I'm able to carve out um, a space that is sort of my own um, and uh, and to use the skills I have acquired over time uh, to support social enterprises um, and not-for-profits. It happened a little bit by accident, to be honest. I, I had a friend who I'd known in Canberra uh, who was the chair of an organisation called The Social Studio. Um, I was doing some pro bono work when I was working with my family in the legal role. She asked me if I'd do some pro bono legal work for The Social Studio and I did that and then kind of fell in love with this idea of social enterprises. It was not something I'd ever come across before. Well, this is 2014, around that yeah, time? Yeah, around that time. And, um, you know, the way these things sometimes happen, I started with the legal work and then ended up being on the board. Um, and uh, and from there, my interest in that, um, that sort of role has grown and 
um, you do one thing and another opportunity sometimes comes up. So in addition, I'm, I'm no longer on the board of the studio, although I really support everything they do and stay in close touch with that. Um, but I now um, am involved with an organisation called Kids and Philanthropy, which is all about uh, creating the uh, change makers of the future and encouraging children to volunteer their time uh, with not-for-profit organisations. So I'm on that board. Um, I'm involved with YCAP as well. I um, am the chair of their impact committee. Um, And I also sit uh, on um, the Impact Readiness Grant um, panel, which provides funding to ventures that are looking to raise uh, impact uh, investment capital. And this sort of helps to provide a kickstart um, around perhaps putting together the kind of documentation you need to raise funding or getting your legal structure in order. Um, so that keeps me quite busy as well. Um, I think that's, yeah, that was some that, of what I do. I asked a really long question, but um, also just, you know, if you could reflect on like um, how does it all balance out for yeah. you? And do you find that you have particular ways that you're able to, um, you know, manage all of that together? Look, I, I don't think I do that very well, to be honest. Um, it's I'm very lucky that I have a flexible work environment uh, in that I don't have to be accountable in a really strict time sense and I think that helps um, as long as I'm doing what I need to do uh, for the family office, then um, that's okay. I don't have to clock in and out anymore, uh, not like I did in the legal uh Law firm no six-minute increments in the family office. <laughs> Not anymore, thank goodness. Um, but that doesn't mean that. Notwithstanding, I mean, there are times where it all just feels like too much. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, it's not an easy thing to balance. And with three children as well, um, so I don't have any great kind of insight into that. I, I think it's a kind of thing where I sometimes have to just readjust, um, shift something a little bit, pull back from something a little bit just to make sure everything does balance out. It seems like you've chosen, although you talked a bit about carving out your own space and away from the family office, you're both very focused on youth and, you know, what you're doing is different but is also very supportive of that youth environment. Is it sort of for you hard to not burn out passion-wise because you're doing things, I feel, that inspire you very much and that you love and spreading all of that effort around sometimes can can tire one, mm. but it can also replenish one. I'm just curious how it impacts you. Do you know, that that's a really good question. So for on, on the weekend, uh, we ran a kids and philanthropy event for 60 uh, children and their families. And in the lead up to organising it and in the thought of, oh, my gosh, we've got to put this all on on a Sunday afternoon, I think I had a kind of feeling of depletion and then you go and you're part of delivering that with a lot of other people and the the elation that you feel seeing the children really engage, asking all these really insightful questions about the not-for-profits that um, they've been working with on the day, that kind of helps to lift the spirit and um, stoke the the passion. But but it does wax and wane, you know. I think it, I think you're right. I think it's really hard to kind of keep passion at a high level at all times. Mm. Um, that's a great answer. On the kids stuff, what are the kids of tomorrow like, or the kids of today like, philanthropy wise? It'll be potentially the uh, family office um, heads of the future and the, the fund managers of the future and the givers of the future. I, I'm really hopeful about them. I think they're getting the kind of education that means that they. Uh, have a really holistic view of the world and the things that we need to do to ensure that uh, the world 
um, is looked after. Uh, and uh, I think that means that whether they're involved in funds management, um, business or otherwise, they are going to bring their whole selves to work mm. much more than perhaps my generation was encouraged to yep. do. And that makes me really positive. I, I feel like we're getting to the point where people are encouraged now to bring their whole selves to work more, definitely than more than what it used to be. But it's still something that, you know, is a work in progress. And I suppose there's a question as well of um, there's bringing yourself to work in the for the ends of furthering the purpose of the organisation. But I feel that there are some instances where it's like we want you to bring your whole self to work and then when you're at home to bring, to, you know, to be at home with work as well. So keep your home you know, with all the work too, it's sort of a, you know, it's something that we have to monitor carefully. Yeah, I think, look, I think that's true. Technology obviously Tech. makes that even yeah. harder. Um, I think, look, I think bigger businesses are probably getting better at uh, helping us to manage that. I think smaller businesses, it can sometimes be difficult. They're often leaner um, and don't always have the capacity to sort of help people navigate that quite so well. Um, I think, it's important though because we're seeing really the impact as well of mental health uh, in the workplace and I think for a lot of young people that's something that many carry with them into the workplace. Yeah. Um, so it's going to be increasingly important for us to sort of keep our eye on that as well, I think. Yeah. And do you sort of see there being many generational differences sort of from how we are today or, you know, maybe what it was like? Because did you, I mean, other than from the family, which I'm sure there was you know, discussions about giving in philanthropy from a very early age. Were there things like kids in philanthropy around that provided that kind of function or were you just expected to kind of learn it as a matter of right or passage? Yeah. Um, we – look, my uh, my journey my, – my father started um, his business uh, in a small room at the back of our house when I was at primary school. So he was just sort of building a business throughout that time and there wasn't a lot of focus on this idea of philanthropy – but he's just always been really interested, I think, in the broader community and has given a lot of himself and been involved in organisations like Rotary and so on over time. But there was absolutely no formal training ground. It was really about observing that, the way that he uh, interacted with community. And I think that's probably been my main inspiration or learning. Um, no, I think these teaching models are these much more deliberate models of teaching people about philanthropy and young people are all new. Hmm. Hmm. And what's what's your sense of the philanthropic or giving environment at the moment? What are sort of the the people feeling? Just because you're across so many spaces, I'm curious to get your insight on that. Yeah, I think, look, I think there's some really great things happening, like increased collaboration, um, a, a, a slower but increasing willingness to fund in an untied fashion, particularly if there are relationships and trusts that have been built, you know, which frees not-for-profits up to be much more flexible and nimble. Uh, the funding of activism or advocacy, um, because I think there's a recognition that there's capacity to create real change and impact if you do that. Um, some of those things I think are really interesting to observe. And talk to me a bit about maybe Scalzo family offices, what you're currently doing in the foods as well, the food business. Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear about what foods you're excited about and okay. also what um, uh, partnerships or investments you're looking at at the moment. Okay. Uh, if I start maybe with the food business. So, um, looks we, um, uh, like everyone, are looking at whatever trends might be emerging and 
Um, I think we're all aware of trends like flexita- uh, flexitarianism. Um, yeah, that, just to find that. Quickly. Yeah, it's that's really about um, people who uh, love to eat meat but recognise that doing that too much might not be good for their health and certainly not good for the health of the planet um, because of the way that we, we currently um, uh, cultivate mm-hmm. animals. Um, and the kind of farming techniques that we use. So this sort of trend is emerging and that opens up, I guess, a new world of opportunity for how we feed people and also driven by the need. I think by 2030 we have 1.5 billion people, additional people we need to feed. So how do we do that and do it sustainably? Um, So a recent investment that we have done, which is, uh, is interesting, is we've invested in a plant protein business that uses fava beans to create a plant protein uh, that is then capable of being used in like a really wide range, a wide range of food and drink. Um, So that's one thing that we're doing that is interesting Um, and it's going to result in, um, you know, some reasonable job numbers in Horsham where the plant will be built and near where the fava beans are grown. So that's in partnership with another uh, organisation. What does your father say about that? Was he sort of um, obviously like back then it wouldn't have been a thing, making, uh, you know, uh, protein replacing meats? No. um, I'm just curious. But it's still coming from a natural product and that's what our food business has always been. And I think he would say, you know, kind of innovate or die, right? And that's been the whole model of the business as it's evolved and this is just another way to innovate. Um, So he's really excited about it actually, which is good. Well, I'm excited about fava beans and I just (laughs) during our catch-up, I never expected – I think we first spent the first 20 minutes of our coffee just talking about food in all its forms and particularly plant-based meat replacement products. We did. I think we also talked about cell meat, cell – uh, cellular meat oh, yeah, lab, as lab well, grown meat. but that didn't. Yep. Yeah, we didn't. We didn't stay on that for as long. We got right into plant protein. Yeah, and and when you turned up, I was eating a Beyond Meat patty, uh, not for the first time, but just trying the home version out. And we we both remarked that it's just amazing how far these things have come. And you know, another popular um, replacement is jackfruit. And I think, are you doing something in the jackfruit we space? We are. Yep. Yeah. So that. So um, interestingly. Uh, snack food consumption is on the rise uh, and people are looking for healthy uh, snack food options. Mm -hmm. And again, vegans or flexitarians might be looking for options like a jackfruit um, that is sort of healthier, but, uh, but still enables people to snack. So yes, we've, we've developed a range of uh, retail style products. Uh, We don't always do retail, but in this case we are. Yeah. How exciting. So when you come up with these sorts of investment strategies or ideas, is it as a result of like an international fact-finding mission? Uh, yeah, yes. I, I didn't go on it myself. Uh, we have uh, an innovation team that mm-hmm. looks at that and uh, they do, they they get out there and they go to international conferences. Um, you can do a lot desktop-wise, but yep. sometimes you just got to get out into the field and be amongst other global payers in the market. So you just watch it unfold, like watch those food patterns kind of play exactly, out. Yep. Exactly. And then just try to come up with, well, where can we play in this space mm. that makes the most sense? Mm. Um, we're not picking winners in that we're, um, you know, mostly in, in ingredients and allow other people to choose how they use those ingredients, but we're trying to be ready for the trend, I guess, towards more sustainable type foods. So is the fava bean um, plant going to be a first in terms of that application of fava beans? Yeah, as far as we know, yes. Wow. Um, mostly um, 
plant proteins been focused on soy, yep. pea protein, but this particular technology that's been developed, uh, yeah, there's not a lot of it going on globally as far as we know. So hopefully, yeah, it'll be used here but exported as well. And how does it sort of all play into your own ethics and sort of tastes around food? Are, are you someone who thinks a lot about um, planet and also diet or are you thinking just about, you know, trying to um, reduce meat for population reasons? Uh, or the animal, you know, well-being reasons. Yeah, I, um, I probably, probably more from the perspective of the environment for me. Um, yes, in terms of health, the health of my children, the health of other people's mm-hmm. children. Um, it's it's also driven a little bit by I think by social justice again. I mean, I think if we think about the fact that we're going to need to feed huge numbers of people, we want to be able to do that in a way that is fair to everybody and in giving everyone access to nutritious food. So yeah, all those things feed into it for me. Awesome. Let's take a quick deep dive and we'll just do our uh, Patreon uh, plus section, our Human Purpose Plus segment. So I've got a couple of um, questions that I've prepared and um, I'll just shoot them at you and feel free if you need to clarify it at any time just to ask. Okay. Question one is, what is one thing you believe that others don't? And this is like an un- unusual voice or unusual opinion. Oh, one thing that I believe. Um I can't think of anything at the moment. Can I do da-ding and move on to the next question? Yeah. You want to find a friend? (laughs) I think I need to. (laughs) Number two is what does your morning and evening routine look like? My morning routine is YouTube yoga. My evening routine is probably too much time on my phone um, after I've spent some really good quality time with each of my children. So what's the – so is there coffee in the morning or there's just yoga? Don't know there's yoga and then there is always at least one. I, I don't have a lot of coffee, but I have to have one. Yeah, nice. And what's what's the drop of choice? Is it a, a, an espresso or? Sometimes it's my stovetop, uh, but sometimes I like to go out and sit down and start my day quietly with the coffee. Beautiful. A beer letter? Yes, Excellent. we have got a beer letter. Excellent. I don't know why I guessed that, but I just thought I'd put, <laughs> pop it in there. We do. Um, and so the nighttime routine is um, not where you want it to be necessarily in terms of screen time, but maybe you're you're getting there or? Are you having a read at night? Uh, I read uh, at bedtime yep. always. Uh, sometimes that means I read a paragraph. Yep. It's uh, yeah, great for sending me to sleep, but sometimes <laughs> sometimes I get through a bit more, but I definitely read before I go to sleep. Yeah, I imagine you're at the end of the day after you've completed all your various responsibilities, just like just like me hunkering over and just being out like a light. I love bed. <laughs> I can't tell you how much I love it. I really do. Um, what is the best thing you've added into your life or routine in the past six months? Uh, definitely that morning yoga. Um, I used to try to get out and do the yoga and I'd always find excuses mm. and yeah, using YouTube has changed my life. How'd you get onto that? Was it a suggestion from a friend? No, I just, my children use YouTube for everything else. <laughs> it's got to have an answer for me as well. And so this is, how long's the program go for? No, uh, the yoga. The yoga yeah. No, you can pick and choose what you want. There's oh, one great. woman, Adrian, who's my main source of <laughs> yoga. Um, and she does everything from five minutes of meditation to an hour and a half of weight loss yoga. So oh, whatever, wow. whatever is your poison, yoga poison, There's she has it. something for everyone. Correct. Brilliant. What is one book everyone should read? Mm, one book everyone should read. Uh, uh, in my mind, it's uh, Stan Grant's book, um, and I can't remember the name of it, uh, it might be something like a message to my country, uh, but his it's, recent book. It's his yep. recent book. Yeah, yeah. And uh, what were the takeaways for you from that one? 
Uh, I think just to think much more deeply about um, the impact that uh, colonisation has had on Indigenous people mm. and how there is still so much um, that we haven't kind of repaired in that relationship. There's a book that's on my list, and I might just mention it as well, just to see whether you've also read that one. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a book that keeps coming up, and uh, Dark Emu. No, have I haven't read, read it. Okay, so it's been read recommended to me by a few people, right. so maybe worth checking out as Great, well. Great, thank you. Yeah, no worries. Always good for a recommendation. Love my reading. Um, is there a quote or expression that you try and live by? Uh, I don't mind the old iron fist in a velvet glove. Ooh. That's uh, I really admire people who uh, live their lives that way and occasionally I try to do it too. Just expand on that a bit for anyone who's not familiar. Yeah, I just um, – it's just this notion that, uh, you know, being really steadfast and um, determined about what it is that you believe in and want to achieve but going about it in a way that is – gentle and uh, persuasive rather than jackhammer can be effective. I love that. I've never heard it before, but I'm going to hang on to that one. (laughs) That's brilliant. Um, What is one thing you think people should do more and one thing people should do less? Hmm. Uh, One thing that I think people should do more, um, probably just kind of get out in nature and get a bit closer to – yeah, get closer to nature. Yeah, that's one. Unless you yeah, get off their technology up in there. Yeah. So just a bit of distance from tech. Yeah. I mean, and that's yeah. something I need to do myself. Yeah, it's, it's a strange world to live in where we're gifted these amazing uh, tools and then we're sort of found, you know, a decade later, we need to strip them back a bit. Yeah. Causing yeah. damage. It's that rebalancing thing, right? Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Um, how does a sense of purpose influence how you live your life? I actually think it's at the sort of centre of everything that I do uh, and coming back to that and that sense of purpose uh, it really is what motivates me. That's awesome. Thank you so much for being a part of our special uh, quickfire segment. Um, so Pleasure. to return to the, the, the body of work, <laughs> so to speak, I'd love to hear a bit about what your thinking is with respect to social enterprise and um, whether that's because just your involvement of YGAP and a few other organisations and also the impact investment readiness. Um, ha- has it come a long way? Are we kind of waning a little bit? And are there supports in place that are needed for it to sort of grow and thrive? Mm. Um, I think if I start with the last part of your question mm. first, I think we're still – there's still this missing middle Um, I think we're much better at supporting social enterprises at the very beginning of their journey, you know, when they're kind of sexy and exciting and new. And uh, at the end of the spectrum where you've got this really quite successful established venture and and providing support at that end. But in that kind of middle section, um, I think we still don't have all the supports that we need for social enterprises there. Um, I think the rise of social procurement has been really helpful in the development of social enterprises. Um, and so I think that's an exciting development and seeing governments really coming in to support them. Uh, the Queensland government's been exemplary on that front. Mm. Um, I think that's that's a good thing. I still think they're a hard and challenging model um, to get right and get that balance right um, and the different mixes of funding that you need. So I, the way I look at it, I think there's a lot of social enterprises that will continue to need grant 
type funding yeah. uh, as well as, you know, having their own more sustainable business model. But I, I'm comfortable with that. I know others have a different view. But I think that that sort of hybrid model um, – is it something that you – sorry to cut you off. I'm just no, curious. Is it something that you see expanding? Because a couple of years ago, social enterprise was hotter than, you know, newer, the, the, the hottest things in sliced bread, basically. Everyone yeah. was sort of pushing people to start social enterprises. But then I think people were realizing how difficult that was, not just to start it. It's easy, as you said, to get the initial funding at times, yeah. but then to make it last beyond a few years was really hard. It is really hard. And I think you've got to have the sort of model that can be nimble, adapt, um, I, I think, as I say, if you're able to feed into that social procurement space, then there's a really sort of viable future long term. Um, I I think like all these things, the model doesn't work for everything. Mm. Uh, and just kind of jumping into it because it's a social enterprise is probably not, not a wise thing to do. Um, it's really thinking about is this the best way to solve the problem that you want to solve, and it may yeah, not be. That's really well said. I think that part of the issue was exactly that, so that intentionality of wanting a social enterprise more than having a viable um, solution to a, or even identifying the right problem at times because I just think there are so many problems out there and so many modes that um, it's almost like what's the right tool to be effective here rather than the other way around. I really agree with you, and yeah. I think some thought, more thoughtful thinking about that would mean we – have less of the sort of burn and churn that you can see in yep. the social enterprise sector. Yeah. And um, so you talked about the Queensland government. How do you think we're going here in Victoria? I mean, the social procurement framework, I think, has been in operation for a little while. So there's more, there should be more opportunities coming online for that sort of critical funding and to be part of supply chains for social enterprises. Is that kind of heading in the right direction? I think so, but it is a little bit chicken and egg and having yeah. an enterprise that's the right size mm. and, and ready to take on those sort of contracts can be quite difficult. I mean, that's why something like the Impact Readiness Grant Fund can be so helpful mm. um, if an enterprise is ready to take that next step up and take on some more investment to meet an opportunity like that, that the government is providing. But uh, I think we're still at a point where there's only a, a limited number of enterprises mm. that are really ready for those sort of bigger, more demanding contracts. In the spectrum of sort of business models, how do you see the role of the purpose-driven business or the, the impact-oriented business uh, as sort of as that kind of like maybe the logical next um, link on the chain up from social enterprise? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'm very much in favour of it. I think that's... Um, we're moving in a direction where that's the kind of organisation people want to be working for. Um, it's the sort of responsibility we all have in thinking about the broader stakeholders we have, not just, um, you know, our, our shareholders. And you can see much more language around that developing even in mainstream business. And I think that is a really good positive thing. And I I, I think if what you might be getting at is, you know, is social enterprise a niche within that and should we perhaps be making sure that we're thinking that way across all business? Potentially. I, I yeah. find that to be really useful threads, I think, in social enterprise thinking that doesn't necessarily translate to that threshold burden of um, can you be giving, you know, 50% um, or more away, uh, whatever that stipulation is around um, profit. Uh, there's there's another one too I think that I'm missing, but it just seems like there's a couple of things that are quite hard to meet in that definition, whereas what you see I think on the other side of the scale is 
there's a huge amount of businesses that are now putting purpose at their center, mm-hmm. um, some in a very authentic, meaningful way that translates to impact, many where it's potentially window dressing. Um, but I think there are definitely – there's so much that business can learn from social enterprise. It's just a matter of um, – I guess it's the fact that we don't really have a separate purpose-driven business bucket kind of or form. So really, we just have a range of organisations that are more, more or less, or to a different degree, purpose driven. So you know, very different. But I, I'm just curious as to where it's all going to go. Yeah, I think yeah. we don't really know yet. But I, I'm hopeful as I increasingly see businesses mm. using that sort of language yep. and spending time thinking about that. That we're going to see more businesses yeah. doing that. I totally agree with you that some do that more authentically than yeah. others. Um, and I, you know, having really embedded purpose is is what you'd love to see more mm. of. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It, hopefully. And I think that the role of B Corp and accreditation bodies is also interesting in all of this, like sort of seeing who's, how many, who is it. So you've got your Unilevers have come across and, you know, Danone and some of these bigger brands are now intrepid and I think Kathmandu is now a B Corp. So it seems like they might be achieving some of that critical mass and obviously B Corp is just certification, so it's only one element, but it is something that um, – when people want to achieve that badge or that goodwill that surrounds a badge or an identity, it's a, it can be a powerful lever for change. I agree with that. And I think the same thing, there's some movement in that direction in um, impact investment funds as well. You know, mm. how do we really assess whether or not uh, a fund uh, is as impactful as it says it is? And as those sort of frameworks develop, um, the UN has been working on some frameworks like that. I think that's an exciting development. Um, it helps us to distinguish those who say they are from those who who actually are and give us something objective um, to, to use to make that assessment, which I think is important. Absolutely. And so how much time would you spend, for example, with other um, people in similar roles like heads of family offices or foundations? Um, do you get sort of enough opportunity or do you have those networks sort of from the outset to sort of go to and bounce those ideas around decision-making and outcomes? I did not have those networks at all uh, when we started and I've built them over time. Mm. And like any network that you build, at first you might um, end up with people that don't feel like the right fish. You might have a different approach, different values, but over time um, I think I have built out a network now of people who I feel I can call, speak to about an opportunity, um, maybe collaborate with, you know, at its at its best. Uh, but that's taken, yeah, that's probably taken four or five years to develop that network. Do you have any good networking tips? Like how do you um, go about meeting someone? We are talking earlier just before we started about, um, I suppose, me lacking your filter and p- perhaps that's why I've fallen <laughs> into podcasting or it might be chicken and egg. Am I doing podcasting because I have no filter or do I have no filter and that's why I, put, I don't know. Enough about me. Um, yeah, I, I wonder sort of how do you, do you kind of look around and sort of are you you know, intentional when wanting to meet people or is it something that you go to networking events? I actually really hate networking yeah. events. I'm I'm terrible like in a big group. Yeah. I, I sort of need to be seated next yeah. to someone and go deep. I'm very bad with the small talk. Um, but that said, I, I do try to force myself into environments where I think I might meet people that um, are going to to teach me something or that I can learn from or um, collaborate with, but it's not an easy thing for me to do. I, I find smaller sort of gatherings easier. Um, that's a great answer and I, I find that 
I too am a bit like that. I don't like being surrounded by too many people, but I'd much rather say if there's somebody who I have researched and maybe I want to catch up with them, we'll just be quite intentional about perhaps wanting to learn more about what they do and maybe a coffee would be good. And then, you know, sometimes that doesn't work out, but I think just the authenticity of the purpose and message is a good thing. Yeah, I agree with that, Mike. I think if there's somebody that you, you know, I don't think a scattergun, a sort of approach mm is the best way to go as a young person, for example, yep. who's looking to sort of forge those next set of networks. But some really carefully chosen uh, people that you reach out to explain why it is clearly that you want to talk to them and meet them. And I, I find mostly people are open and receptive. Um, that might just be because they think we have some <laughs> some funds in our foundation <laughs> that they might be able to get access to. I hope that's not the only reason. Um, but, Yeah. I want to just talk a little bit about mentors and the role that mentors play in your development and also how you perceive other people to be developing. Did you have mentors that were good early on outside of the family or you know, talk about inside as well? And what is the role of sort of mentorship for you today? Both are you actively a mentor and are you being mentored? Yeah. Um, look, I when we first set up the family office, I did um, – I didn't have a mentor so much as we we sort of we had a somebody that helped advise us through that process and uh, and that was helpful. Um, since then, though, I feel like my mentors are more people that I would consider almost my peers, yep. but whose opinion I really respect and who I feel push me, uh, know me well enough to know what might be holding me back mm. and push me and encourage me to go that step further. Um, I find that really useful. Um, I don't know that there was a concept of mentorship when I first started working, but um, but yeah, that's that's where I've sort of landed over time and felt that found that useful. Um, I do provide a form of mentorship if anyone asks for it. So um, I volunteer some time at One Roof uh, where people just sign up and say they want to have a chat to you about mm-hmm. something to do with uh, the business that they've started, mm-hmm. um, and that. You know, I'm really happy to do that. I don't always know that I have something valuable to say, but I, I'm happy to make myself available. And certainly in the uh, not-for-profits that I'm involved with, uh, I, I just make myself available mm. for, for any kind of question, answer, session that uh, the people running that organisation, you know, want, want me to be involved with. That's awesome. And so how about your own sort of growth and personal development um, now? Um, do, do you sort of uh, focus on studying sort of externally? Are you somebody who spends a lot of time reading? Are you somebody who, you know, um, attends uh, workshops and events? I probably do a little bit of all of that. Um, I I have I do try to read so about impact investing, for sure. example, which is some uh, probably a concrete example where – I was relatively new to it and so I've, I read a lot about it. Um, I listen to podcasts about it. So the Amidia Network had a really good series of podcasts uh, around impact investing and just try to kind of go as deep as I can into that. Mm. Uh, I, yeah, that's probably my approach when something is of interest to me and I'm probably more focused on uh, an issue than my own personal self-development. Yeah. yep. That's more so my you, style. It's like finding a pocket or something of interest and then diving in and sort of 
what getting what you can or want out of it and how valuable have you found podcasts generally to sort of help fill those knowledge gaps or to give you that kind of learning yeah for someone like me who's got to do a good chunk of housework as well which I find incredibly boring it's like been a revelation to be able to have some little earplugs in and just you barely I barely notice if I'm ironing or uh, doing the washing anymore I don't feel as resentful about it so that's been good because uh your time's limited and doing two jobs at once, learning and cleaning, yeah. uh, is helpful. Yeah, um, I, I can totally agree with that. And I, I just think being able to have something that can chew up that idle time but also double down on productivity, what I like to do is like, you know, I'm trying to get through a certain amount of podcasts and if I'm doing another task as well, like I'm, I'm just – it's just so much productivity. I just feel great about it. The only yeah. thing I haven't mastered yet is I can't listen to a podcast and do work at the same time. Yeah, that, I don't think I'd I think my brain able, will explode. Yeah, I would never be able to master <laughs> that. I, one thing I do find frustrating though sometimes is I might hear something really great yeah. on a podcast yeah. and it's a bit hard to down tools, jot something yeah, down. Yeah. And, do you ever – I mean that happens to me when I exercise. I do these <laughs> yeah. ridiculous F45 classes and sometimes I will keep my phone you know, at the edge of the room and I'll, I'll have to like leave the circuit, run across the room and quickly <laughs> do a note because I'm one of those people, if I don't get it down immediately, it could be gone forever. That is me all over. Yeah, I don't know where it's going, but it yeah. might not be there. No, I know. And sometimes I jot it down or put it in my notes and then I look back at it and I forget what it was. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what, is, what, what the hell does that mean? What's the context? Yeah, that happens quite often. Uh, awesome. So what are you most excited about that's coming up for you beyond obviously the father bean stuff is incredibly exciting, but are there things going on in your world that you, you want to uh, mention that you're um, excited about at a business or personal level? Uh, I think probably we've made a decision as a family that the investments we are going to make uh, need to align with our values, just as our philanthropy has, just as I think, my, you know, my parents have always run their business. Um, and that that's quite an exciting thing to have made that commitment, uh, all of us together. And I'm really excited about where that might lead us mm. in terms of the kinds of things that we will invest in. So we've done some of that, but now we want to take a much more holistic approach to that. Uh, so that's pretty exciting. Um, we mentioned the plant protein. I'm really excited about where that might lead us. When do you think we'll be able to taste some fava bean products? <laughs> uh, the, I know you love fava beans, <laughs> but the whole point of this protein is that it's tasteless <laughs> and odorless and you can add it to almost anything else and let those things be the taste driver. Okay. So I think you might be a bit disappointed with our plant no, protein. No, never. But I'll send you a sample. Oh. Great. Excellent. <laughs> a, a, a taste release here. It's fantastic. So just back, going back to the board stuff, because you do a lot of stuff outside of the family business, that I think is really impressive and important. Do you have any advice for young people that might not be on boards? I mean, for me, I'm 35 now. I've been on a board for a few years. I was lucky to get an opportunity a few years ago, but I feel as though it is really hard as a younger person to get board opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, is this something that people should prioritize? And just can you get your thoughts? Generally. I, I don't know. I think building up your skill set um, is important. I think if you're interested in an organisation, volunteering in some other capacity, getting to know it, um, things, opportunities can sometimes come up. Mm. Um, I know with Kids and Philanthropy, we have been talking about setting up some sort of youth advisory board. So that sometimes can be a place to start. Does the organisation have another layer of yep. subcommittee, for example, before you get to the board stage? That can be yep. a really good... You think that's a good place to start? I think so because yep. you don't have to carry all the responsibility yeah. of being on a board, but you can, um, yeah, start to get involved and, and learn some of the governance type skills that are important. 
That's excellent. So I think this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for stopping by. If people want to learn more about your work and get in touch, um, how can they do that? I'm probably best contacted via LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been really nice. Thanks so much, Mike. It's just like having a conversation with a good friend. It's great. <laughs> amazing. That's what I'm going for. <laughs> it's been awesome chatting. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes. Why not share the podcast with your networks? After all, 62% of our subscribers come from word-of-mouth recommendations and social shares. You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. To learn more about all of that, just head to humansofpurpose.com. 